Good morning, everyone. Lesson 11, we are going to be looking at pages 147 through 158 of our book, The Person of Christ, an Introduction. We'll be looking at chapter 8, and originally on the schedule I had this uh, broken into uh, two lessons, uh, the remainder of the book really broken into two lessons. I've decided to break it into three, so we'll be going one week more in our study. Um, I hope that's okay with everyone. And then we'll have two weeks off. Okay, so we have this week and two more for this class. Then we'll have two weeks off, and then we'll start a new study after that, probably something on the doctrine of the church, um, which I think would be very helpful to us. Uh, But lesson 11, Jesus as God the Son incarnate. Uh, Here in this chapter, Wellam uh, really tries to positively um, present uh, the doctrine of Christ. Uh, Whereas in previous chapters, we've been doing a lot of comparing and contrasting uh, the orthodox doctrine of Christ with uh, different errors throughout the history of the church. Let's open up in a word of prayer, and then we'll move through our lesson together. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this beautiful Lord's Day. It is so good to assemble together with brothers and sisters in Christ. It is such a joy to our hearts to have just a small foretaste of the new heavens and new earth where uh, the... The new creation will be filled with those who worship and serve you, O Lord. So we thank you for this gift. We thank you for the gift of your word, which brings light to our feet and light to our minds. I pray that we would study it carefully, uh, not only as we read and teach the scriptures in the morning service, but also as we study the word of God systematically. Do continue to help us to understand our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. What I wanted to do is to briefly um, overview with you the, let's see here, I wanted to briefly overview with you, where's my numbers, I lost it in my, oh they're not numbered like that, how many points are there in, in entirety in this chapter that he makes? Ten. There's ten. And I wanted to show all ten to you before going over the first three in detail uh, this morning. These are ten points to bring clarity uh, to our understanding of, of Christ and the question, who is He? Uh, first of all, the, the main heading is the Divine Son. And there are three points under that. The person or subject of the Incarnation is the Eternal Divine Son. Two, as the Divine Son, the second person of the Triune Godhead, He is the exact image, correspondence, and Word of the Father, and is thus fully God. Three, as the Divine Son, He has always existed in an eternally ordered relation to the Father and the Spirit, which now is gloriously revealed in the Incarnation. Those are the points we're going to consider this morning, and it all falls under the broader heading of the Divine Son. Uh, But then the next broad heading in this chapter is a classic view of person. And there we will learn that a person is ontologically distinct from nature. A person is the subject or I of a nature with a nature consisting of a thing's attributes and capacities. For example, the will, the mind. A person is not a soul. And in defining person, we must also distinguish between divine and human persons. 
Uh, we're going to talk about that under a classic view of person. In fact, we're going to get to that today, aren't we, in our outline here. Uh, let me drop down. I'm confusing myself with the outline. I see it now. Let me drop down to what we'll cover in Lesson 12 under the heading The Incarnation. The Incarnation is an act of addition, not subtraction. The virgin conception was the glorious means by which the Incarnation took place. The human nature assumed by the Divine Son is fully human, unfallen, and sinless. And then in Lesson 13, we will look at the two natures. In the Incarnation, the Eternal Son took on a new mode of existence as man. The Divine Son now subsists and acts in two natures without changing the integrity of either nature, confusing them or melding them into a divine-human hybrid. Uh, Then we will consider Christ as a new covenant head. Nine, by assuming a human nature, the Divine Son became the first man of a new creation, perfectly qualified to be our great mediator and new covenant head. And lastly, we will consider Christ as Lord and Savior, Jesus the Messiah, the God, the Son, God the Son incarnate, is unique and alone Lord and Savior, and thus demands our entire lives and faith, love, and obedience to Him. I'm sorry I stated that in a confusing manner. My eyes were not catching uh, the approach I took in this outline right off the bat. But I wanted to just show you these major headings. Uh, they are these. First, we are considering Christ as the Divine Son. Then we are considering the Incarnation, then the two natures, New Covenant Head, Lord and Savior. So four major headings and ten points that fall under them uh, to try to clarify my uh, gibberish from just a moment ago. So first of all, Lesson 11, let's uh, consider the Divine Son and what Wellam presents to us here. Again, let me restate these three points. The person or subject of the Incarnation is the Eternal Divine Son. So we know that God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Who became incarnate? Which person or subsistence became incarnate? It is the Word or the Son who became incarnate. As the Divine Son, the second person of the triune God, He is the exact image, correspondence, and Word of the Father and and is thus fully God. So the second person of the Trinity is fully God. He subsists in the one divine nature. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. They share the one divine nature. He is fully God, and yet it is the person of the Son, not the nature of the Son, that becomes incarnate. Three, as the divine Son, He has always existed in an eternally ordered relation to the Father and the Spirit, which now is gloriously revealed in the Incarnation. We learned about this in our study of the doctrine of the Trinity. Aren't you glad we had that study first? We studied theology proper first, and we tried to learn about the Trinity, and And how it could be that there is one God and yet three persons within the one God. And we really wrestled with the question, how how are they distinct? How are they one? Well, they share the divine nature. There is one divine nature. How are they distinct, though? How do we distinguish the persons of the triune God? And we talked about uh, these eternal relations, the the doctrine of the processions, how the Son proceeds from the Father and, and the Spirit proceeds uh, or is uh, spirated from the, the Father and the Son. You remember all of that teaching there? Well, uh, all of that we will see is crucial to understanding how the Incarnation works. You can't really understand the Incarnation without having some understanding of the Triune God and how there can be three subsistences or persons within uh, the one true God. Uh, so those are the three main points that Wellam makes under the Divine Son. And he then explains those in the remainder of this section, which we are going to be considering today. 
Who is Jesus? Well, according to John, the Apostle John, He is the Word made flesh, John 1, 1 and 14. Yet in stating that it's the Word who becomes human, John reminds us of two crucial truths. One, the person or subject of the Incarnation is the Word slash Son, not the divine nature. That is so very crucial. Who became incarnate? It was the Son who took to Himself a human nature. The person of the Son. Remember, in the one true God, there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the Son who becomes incarnate. The Son is not a nature. The Son is a person. So the nature of God did not morph into a human nature, in other words. The nature of God remains as it has always been, and yet the person of the Son becomes incarnate. The Scriptures are very clear in testifying concerning this. It's not the divine nature that becomes human. It's the divine Son who is a person who becomes human or takes to Himself a human nature. Uh, So when John says that the Word became flesh, that's a very specific statement. It's not that God became flesh in the sense of the divine nature becoming flesh. It is specifically the Word. Not the Father, not the Spirit, but the Word, the person of the Son who takes to Himself a human nature. The second crucial truth that is established by John is that the person of the Incarnation is eternal, divine, and in an eternally ordered relation with the Father and the Spirit. He was with God, and the Word was God, thus underscoring the triune relations of persons within the Godhead. So, the One who became incarnate, the Son or Word, is the eternal God. He has eternally proceeded from the Father, and has eternally sent forth the Holy Spirit. He is the one true God. So Jesus as the Son, Jesus as the person of the Son, Jesus as the Word, is not a created being. Jesus as the Son is not a created being. Instead, the Son is the second person of the triune Godhead through whom all things were created and are now sustained. Let me ask you for just a moment for the sake of clarity. Is there a sense in which Jesus is a created being? Yes. There is a sense in which Jesus is a created being. He he came into existence as a human being, as the Son of God incarnate and as our Messiah in time. His, His human nature was brought into existence. His human nature has not always been. But he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. His human nature was. And at the moment of conception, the divine Son was joined to that human nature. He became incarnate. So there is a sense in which Jesus has always been. There's a sense in which Jesus is eternal if we consider him according to his personhood and according to his divine nature. There's a sense in which Jesus was born. Uh, as we consider Him according to His humanity and according to the terms of incarnation. But Jesus, considered as the Son, is not a created being. He is the second person of the triune Godhead through whom all things were created and now are sustained. See Colossians 1.15 and Hebrews 1.1. It is the Son, secondly under this main point, who is now 
the incarnate Son, so that by His work He becomes our glorious Redeemer, our Lord, and the head of the new creation. So this really restates the point that I just made. It is the Son who is now the incarnate Son. So the incarnate Son did come into being when He was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And He came into being to be our glorious Redeemer, Lord, and Head of the new creation. The biblical evidence for the Son's full deity is abundant, Wellam says, as discussed in chapters 2 through 4. And he does, I think, very quickly overview some of the biblical evidence for the Son's full deity in this chapter on page 148. Uh, But it was spelled out in chapters 2 through 4 of this book with clarity. Uh, D here under point 2. To account for all that Scripture teaches about Jesus and His relation to the Father and the Spirit, the church distinguishes between the person or subject of the incarnation and the natures the person subsists in. The person-nature distinction is a theological distinction necessary to account for Scripture's presentation of one God who is triune. So, Wellam uh, takes some time to talk again about what a nature is and what a person is. This nature-person distinction, making a distinction between these two things, is crucial for understanding both the incarnation and our triune God. If we do not make a proper distinction between nature, what a nature is, and person, what a person is, we really cannot comprehend what the Scriptures reveal concerning God nor Christ. The nature-person distinction is very crucial. And so, Wellam revisits that here, I think, in a very helpful way uh, to make sure that we've got it. Uh, By the way, nature and person, uh, these, these words are not necessarily biblical words, kind of like Trinity is not a biblical word. It's not a word that you find in the Bible. Why do we use these terms, nature and person? Why do we use the term trinity? Why do we do these things, brothers and sisters? What do you think? To understand the concept behind it. it. Uh, So much in Wellam's book did clarify that when we do theology, it's faith-seeking understanding. Um, In other words, we take the scriptures by faith. We believe everything that they say. And over time, we seek to formulate doctrines. We seek to bring it all together to say things that are true concerning God, concerning Christ, and this work that He was done. It, it has done. It's, it's the right thing for us to do. I, I grow um, a bit frustrated with this idea that we are to read the Scriptures and then never say anything definite about what the Scriptures say. That seems to be an attitude that is present in the church and amongst Christians. We just need the Bible. Well, I agree. The Bible is our only only authority for truth. We are to read it. But the end result of our reflection on Scripture ought to be definitive statements concerning what the Bible says. You understand? I I don't see the value at all in reading the Scriptures for a lifetime, but being unwilling to say, this is what the Scriptures teach. And so these theological terms have emerged in the history of the church in order to speak with clarity and precision concerning what the Bible says about God and about Christ. 
If the terms are accurate, if they fit, they ought to be retained. If they are inaccurate, is that the word? Inaccurate. If they are inaccurate in some way, they ought to be done away with or changed. Um, but if, if they do the job, then we ought to retain them and use them. For here we are able to promote and defend the Christian faith with clarity. I saw your hand, brother. Ben, do you have something? Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. And in the previous couple of chapters, we also observe that sometimes people will take these historical terms and they'll kind of gut them of their original meaning and try to fill them with new meaning. And it's, it's a problem. You know, it's, those are sometimes very difficult errors to detect, um, but we must detect them. Not only should we use these terms if they work, but we ought to retain the original meaning of these terms as well lest we introduce confusion into the church. So that's a bit of a tangent. Let's go back to nature and person and Wellam's uh, definition of these things from history. Nature, in the Greek, usia, in the Latin, essentia, and substantia, there's my awful Latin, uh, then refers to what an object is. Nature refers to what an object is. So when we're talking about the nature of a thing, we're asking, what is it? What is it? When we're talking about the nature of a thing, we're asking, what is it? If I were to ask you, what is the nature of a rock? What would you do? You would begin to describe to me uh, rocky characteristics, right? Rocks are what? What would you say? They're hard. They're made up of a combination of, of minerals, I, I don't know. We would, we would talk about rocks. Are there different kinds of rocks? Yes, there are different kinds of rocks, but all rocks share certain things in common. If I were to ask you, what is the nature of a tree? What is the nature of a dog? What is the nature of a human? You would be able to identify things that are characteristic of all trees, all dogs, and all humans. Within nature, within God's creation... There is a nature and then there are individual instances of the nature. There are things that distinguish trees from other trees and a dog from other dogs and human beings from other human beings. But you could see that with these created things, they all have a nature, do they not? They all have certain things in common so that we can say that this is one dog and that is a dog and that is a dog, so on and so forth. And so a nature, when we ask what, what is the thing's nature, we're asking what is it? What are its defining characteristics? You, you understand. And so there are certain things that all human beings share in common. We all have human bodies. We all have human souls. Our bodies all have similar parts, or most of the time the very same parts. And our human souls have the same parts too, the same faculties or capacities, mind, will, and affections. You understand, when we're talking about the nature of a human, we're asking, what does it mean to be human? And here are the defining characteristics of a human being. Right? That's what a nature is. And if we do the same thing with God, we could say, well, this is what God is. He is a most pure spirit. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being. Here are His attributes or characteristics. 
He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. You hear the word is a lot, don't you? He is omnipresent. Uh, This is His nature. We can say many more things about God. Here's something about God, though. He is one of a kind. He is one of a kind. There is a human nature, and there are many instances of human beings, because we are distinguished by our personhood. So there is a human nature, but there are many instances of human beings, because we all are different people. But with God, there is only one God, and within God, within the one divine nature, shared, uh, the, uh, the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share the one divine nature. But we have to clearly think about and define nature. Nature refers to what an object is. A divine nature is what God is in His one undivided essence, which from Scripture and by reason of analysis, there's a note here, see Richard Muller, Dictionary of Latin and Greek Theological Terms, page 94, we describe in terms of God's attributes and perfections. Okay, was that a note to me? Or what was that? Richard Muller, I, I do love that dictionary of Latin and Greek theological terms. Maybe I intended to go there and had forgotten. A divine nature is what God is in His one undivided essence, which from Scripture and by reason of analysis we describe in terms of God's attributes and perfections. B, a human nature is what constitutes humanity, namely a body-soul composite with corresponding capacities such as will, mind, and emotions or affections. Okay, so I've already said that, haven't I? Uh, But it's stated very nicely and succinctly by Wellam here. So a nature refers to what an object is, but person... Hypostasis, persona, substantia, however, is the subject of the nature and it subsists or exists in a nature and acts through it. Persons are acting subjects, natures are not. Persons are acting subjects, natures are not. So, think about this. I'm slowing down here because I think this is such an important concept. And I hope this is helpful to you, not only in thinking about God and Christ, but yourself and humanity. Um, I think we're learning a lot about anthropology, in fact, in this study, too. At least, I hope we are. A person is the subject of the nature, and it subsists or exists in a nature and acts through it. And we've done this over and over again in our study. What are you? Human. Who are you? If you were to answer, I would hear your name. Right, So we share humanity in common. We have bodies and we have souls, human bodies, human souls. And yet we're all different because we're different subjects. We are different persons. And so there are different persons in each one of us that act through our nature. I, Joe, use my mind. I, Joe, have affections or emotions or desires, I, Joe, decide to do certain things, and I do those things through the body that God has given to me. I decide to act with my body. I decide to speak with my, my tongue. I decide to think about certain things with my mind, mind, affections, will, 
me as a person. I act through the nature that God has given to me. I am a human being just like you are. You understand this? So, so the person is the, the acting subject. Who does these things? If, if I were to say something and then someone were, were to ask you, who said that? You would say, Joe said it. Right? Joe said it. And if you were to analyze that process, you would say, he said it through his nature. He thought about it. <laughs> he felt certain emotions. And then he chose, willingly, to speak. Right? Joe said it. He's the, he's the subject who acted, who chose to speak, and he did it through his nature. So we must make this distinction between person and nature, really in order to understand God, Christ, and even ourselves. Yes, quick question. Okay, so in our human nature, we are all distinct in our human bodies by our person. But Christ did not take on, he took on human nature, but he did not take on a human person because the person was the son. Yes, that's well said. So Christ, he took on a human nature, but not a human person. So it's not as if a human person existed and then was possessed by God. Right? It's not as if a human person existed and then was sidled up next to by the Divine Son or something like that. Uh, But rather, the eternal Son of God assumed or took to Himself a human nature. And so we talked about that in previous lessons with the terms in hypostasia and anhypostasia, this idea that the, the human nature that the son assumed was without a person, right? And then later it was clarified that it's not that it was without a person, but that the person of the incarnation was always the son uh, from the moment of conception. So there was never a time when the person of Christ was without a person, if I could speak in that way. There was never a time in which the human nature of Christ was without a person. The person of the incarnation was always the divine son. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. E. Yes. No, I, one thing I love about this book is that we've, we, it, this is kind of all review, right? We've, we've considered these things by comparing and contrasting orthodoxy with errors, which is helpful. And, and now Wellam is kind of coming back to this and is just presenting it all over again because it's the kind of thing you need to consider over and over and over again. I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, if you have not had the time, you need to read this book. You need to read it slowly uh, because we are racing through some pretty detailed and technical things together in our 45 minutes of time. So persons, person is the subject of the nature and it subsists in a nature and acts through it. Persons are acting subjects. Natures are not. Natures are not. Um, if we can distinguish in our minds between person and nature, if you just imagine a, a nature without a person, that nature... Uh, The the human nature, for example, really has no ability to act. It provides the capacities, may we speak in that way? The nature provides the capacities, but it's the person who is the acting subject, who who brings the the decision to speak, to think, to act as it does. Uh, Does that make sense? Um, The body gives us the capacity to act in this world. 
the tongue, the, the physical body, but so too does the soul. It's the soul that gives us, provides us with the capacity to think rationally, to feel uh, drawn to things or repelled by them. Uh, and, and then the will gives us that ability to act upon choice. Scott. Yes, we would want to say that the our redemption had to be accomplished by God. That's why that, I think that's the implication of what I'm saying. That's yeah. So You're right. It, you have a human that's, that's, that's atoning, you don't have God. Correct. Purely. Correct. Yes, and so this always seems to come back to the question of do we have a redeemer or not? You know, <laughs> that's where the argument went in the early church. Do we have a redeemer or not? If if God if if Christ was not fully God, then we do not have a redeemer. If he was not fully man, then we do not have a redeemer. So here is the great mystery of the incarnation, but we can see why it was necessary in order to redeem us from our sins. No mere man could do it, only God could, and yet a mere not a mere excuse me, no mere man could do it, only God could, and yet a man had to do it. And here we see that both of these things were accomplished in Christ, the eternal Son of God, who took to Himself a true human nature. A classic view of person then is uh, elaborated upon here. I, I, I started to review this section earlier, and I shouldn't have. My eyes didn't follow my outline properly. But here, Wellam goes deeper into the question of person. A person is ontologically distinct from nature. So person and nature are not the same thing. Person and nature are not the same thing. They are distinct things. A person is the subject or I of a nature, a nature consisting of things of a thing's attributes and capacities. For example, will, mind, affections. So, a person is the subject or I of a nature. And I think here, well, I didn't include it in the outline, but I think here he cites that very famous passage where Jesus, at one point, said. Before Abraham was, I am. Just think about that for a moment. If you think about Jesus, you go, what are you talking about? You were born to marry. You were born to marry. And the Jews struggled with this. The unbelieving Jews. They said, this guy isn't even, what was the number, 50 years old, 40 years old? <laughs> and he's saying that he was before Abraham existed, he was. He, 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 well, the I am, the, that language is very important. You know that. He's saying, I am before Abraham was. In what sense was Jesus before Abraham existed? In what sense did Jesus exist before Abraham existed? According to his divine nature and person, he is the I am who revealed himself to, to Abraham and the patriarchs and more fully to, to Moses and to Israel and the burning bush. You, you, you guys get this. The person, the, the person is the subject or eye of a nature. And, and you can't make sense of Jesus' comments that so infuriated the Jews, claiming to be the I am who predated, pre-existed Abraham unless you understand this nature-person distinction. 
Thirdly, a person is not a soul. There were errors in the history of the church that equate person with soul. And a person is not a soul. A person acts through a soul. The soul is a part of a nature, a human nature, right? We've learned that. The soul is a part of a human nature. What is man? What are human beings? Well, they are body and soul. And then we are distinguished by personhood. In defining person, however, we must also distinguish between divine and human persons. Divine persons are the archetype to the human ectype, and the relation between them is not univocal but analogical. This is a really interesting section here. I feel like Wellam kind of dives deep into something and, 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 and fleshes it out. So, uh, God eternally exists as three persons or subsistences, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we are persons as well. Uh, we all share human nature in common, but we're different people. We have personhood. We've covered that already. And what we want to say is that there, there's something similar between divine personhood and human personhood. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are acting subjects that share the divine nature. Yes? And we are acting subjects, each one of us individually, who act through the nature that God has given to us, our, the human nature. So there's something similar about divine personhood and human personhood. But are they the same thing? Uh, we would want to say no. God's personhood is archetypal. It is the, the, the highest and it is the model thing. And human personhood is ectypal. It's kind of modeled off of it. In fact, we would want to say that this is, this is a part of what it means to be made in the image of God. God is the... God is the highest of all beings. He is the pattern, if you will, and we are patterned after Him in, I think, many ways. One of the ways that we are patterned after Him is as it pertains to personhood. God is a person. There are three persons within the triune God, and we are persons as well. So we are... We, we are similar to him in this regard. We are not the same, obviously. God is much greater and higher than we, even as it pertains to personhood. I hope I can use that word. I don't know if there's any theological or philosophical baggage that comes along with it. There probably is, but you, you know what I mean. So, there's an analogy between God's person and our person, the, the persons of the triune God and, and our person. There's an analogy, but it's not univocal. It's not one for one, because we are creatures, not the creator you see. And you can see why Wellam dives into this, and I think it is interesting. Um, he wants to show us that it was in fact possible for this, the person of the Son to take to himself a human nature and to act through it. There's enough in common there is enough in common between divine persons and, and human persons uh, that, it would, that it is possible for the second person of the triune God to take to himself a human nature and act through it. Are you following with me? If there wasn't anything in common between divine persons and human persons, then we might say it, it's impossible for the divine to assume a human nature and to act through it. There's nothing in common between the two of them. You know, it, it just it, it wouldn't work. Um, I'm trying to think of an illustration on the fly here to help with this. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. If you, if you want to replace the old motor in your car with a new motor, it doesn't have to be the same motor, but there has to be enough in common 
between the old motor and the new motor, that the two that it would work, that it would fit, that it would be compatible. And it's almost as if Wellam is trying to establish something like that here. The person of God and, the, and our personhood aren't the same. They're related by way of analogy, but there's enough in common to where the second person of the Son was able, in fact, to assume a human nature and to act through it. Let me just let Wellam speak, because he's probably way more clear than I am. A divine person is a subsisting relation in the one indivisible, indivisible divine nature Unlike human persons who subsist only in their own nature. So here, uh, Wellam is saying, here's something that we do not have in common with God. Um, Within God, there are three persons that subsist in one nature. But with human beings, there are many instances of the human nature. But we all only subsist in one nature. Have you ever tried to get into somebody else's head or to, um, to put yourself in their shoes. You understand what I'm saying here? Uh, to see the world through their eyes, you can kind of imagine it. But of course, there are major limitations. I, as a person, can never uh, really get into you and assume your nature. You understand? There's one person in one nature with each one of us. But within God... There are three persons within one nature. So there is a difference. B, how are the divine persons distinct? The persons are not distinguished by divine attributes since each person shares the divine nature fully and completely. Instead, the persons are distinguished by their eternal, imminent, ad intra, personal relationships known by revelation owing to God's actions in creation and redemption, ad extra. The divine persons are distinguished by their own personal mode of subsisting in the divine nature. I rushed through this because I'm running out of time. One and two, um, this is review from our study of the doctrine of the Trinity that we were blessed by through Swain's book some time ago. So how are these persons in the one divine nature distinguished? Uh, They're distinguished uh, by, not by attributes, for they share the nature, uh, but they're distinguished by their eternal relations The Father is distinguished by the relation of paternity, the Son by filiation or eternal generation from the Father, and the Spirit by spiration or eternal procession from the Father and the Son. We've we've covered this before. Human persons, on the other hand, are not subsisting relations in the same nature. Rather, each human person is finite, subsisting in its concrete nature. No human person subsists in more than its own nature, and no human person shares the same nature with another person. All concrete human natures are the same kind of nature, but not the same instance of it. It's fascinating, right? Uh, You and I share human nature in common. We have the same kind of nature, but we're all individual instances of it. We're different people. We're different people. Uh, So God, we we are not just like God. You you understand. Our our, um, similarity to God is it's analogical, not univocal. It's not one for one. It's similar, but not the same. Yet a human person is analogous uh, to the divine Person, because it subsists in and acts through a nature. So they, we share this in common. Uh, in God, there are three persons, and those persons act through the divine nature. Yes. And we have ourselves, personhood, and as persons, we act through the nature that God has given to us, our human nature. So we share that in common. In Christ, and here is his point, and it really is a, a wonderful point, kind of a technical one. In Christ, there is enough similarity 
Since the Divine Son assumes a human nature without a human person, that was brought up earlier, it's anhypostasia, contrary to Nestorianism, He is able to personalize, that is in hypostasia, His human nature and be fully human, although His person is the Divine Son. I think His point is simply this, there's enough in common between the Divine Person of the Son and human personhood that it was possible for him to assume the human nature and to personalize it, to be the acting subject, you see. He was able to act through the human body and the human soul of Christ. A proper comparison of the person-nature distinction is crucial in making rational sense of the biblical presentation that Jesus is God the Son incarnate. Through the divine nature, the Son continues to act as God. Through the divine nature... The Son continues to act as God. What, do, what doctrine is that? Uh, we've learned about it. What doctrine is that? What is it called? It's the doctrine of the extra, remember? Sometimes called the extra Calvinisticum. Uh, the idea here is that the Son of God did not cease to be God when he took to himself a human flesh, but continued to uphold the universe by the word of his power. And through his human nature, the eternal Son asserts itself within a human consciousness and in human language. It is, the Son is, the divine eye of a man who is living a genuine human life. So the Son of God, the Word of God, lived a genuine human life. This is well, I'm quoting, uh, how do you pronounce this? Jean Gallot. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. There is that passage, John 8, 58. There's where Wellam brings it up. Okay. So the Son lived a genuinely human life through the body and soul that He assumed. See the triune persons and the relations very quickly. To think rightly about the Incarnation, we must also reflect on the Son's relations to the Father and the Spirit, God as triune grounds Christology. So we need to have a solid doctrine of God before we can have a solid doctrine of Christ. I think that is right. Apart from understanding the eternal relations of the divine persons, we cannot make sense of who Jesus is. We are to expect continuity between the ad intra, personal relations, the divine processions, and God's ad extra actions, the divine missions, as they function in redemptive history. Um, I did not outline this whole portion that Wellam has here. It's a wonderful portion. You'll need to read it on your own. But but think of it, if in God in eternity, God as He is for all eternity, ad intra um, relations between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we see that there's eternal processions. The Father, uh, the, the Son proceeds from the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and Son. We ought to expect to see the same thing as it pertains to the accomplishment of our redemption, so that the Father sends the Son to accomplish our redemption through the Incarnation, and it is the Father and the Son who sends the Spirit to apply the, rede- the redemption that Christ has earned to us. You see how the two correspond to one another? God as He is in all, for all eternity, and these eternal processions that we have considered, they mirror uh, the external works of God for the accomplishment of our redemption. The Son and the Spirit proceed from the Father to accomplish and apply our redemption. Every external act of God is one and undivided. So who saved us from our sins? God did. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yes. 
Yet, the Father initiates and acts through the Son. The Son acts from the Father, and the Spirit acts from the Father and the Son. Why did the Son alone become incarnate? Wellam asks on page 154, and then he answers that question beautifully. How does the incarnate Son relate to His Father? Well, He lives in perpetual submission to Him. He lives to do His Father's will. How does the incarnate Son relate to the Spirit? Well, He sends forth the Spirit to apply the work, the redemption that He has earned. You see, um, we, we are to see that in the incarnation, it's, it's, a, it's a manifestation of the eternal relations of God, as they have always been. It's a manifestation of it. The Father sends the Son. The Son submits Himself fully to the Father. And the Father and the Son then send the Holy Spirit to do the work that God has appointed for the Spirit to do. That the Spirit is to do. I didn't say that well. But it's always easy to trip and to slip into error when you're talking about the doctrine of God and Christ. Do you understand this? you comprehend it generally? You're looking at me like that was too much all at once. And it was. And we're over time... Go back and read this and reread it. Reflect upon these things. Um, you, you know, at the beginning of this lesson, we said uh, when we do theology, it is faith seeking understanding. Uh, there is a sense in which I, I say it is just fine to not fully comprehend these things. It's just fine to not be able to rattle these truths off with great ease and precision. I, I hope that you believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And if I were to ask you the question, why do you think the forgiveness of sins is available in Him? I hope, it is, I hope you would say something like this, because He is the Son of God incarnate. You, you see, He is the Son of God incarnate. He did a work that only God can do. And yet He did it as a man, because a man had to do it. A man had to offer up obedience a man had to atone for the sins of man. If you are able to articulate that, I think your doctrine of Christ is pretty sound. This book that we are here considering helps us to think with more and more precision about the doctrine of Christ, though. It is faith, faith that is rather basic, seeking greater understanding. So both things are fine, right? Simple faith, and yet us wrestling and striving together to add understanding to this simple faith that we have, this faith that has been given to us by God. Um, both things are just fine, but we ought to seek to grow together, brothers and sisters, in our knowledge of God and of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, do help us. Help us to read carefully. Help us to understand. Help us to strive uh, to better understand you, O God, in this Christ that you have provided for us. I pray that as we comprehend these things more and more, that our love would grow uh, that our obedience to Christ would grow too. Uh, what a marvelous thing to consider that you, O oh God, took to yourself a human nature. You, O oh God, the eternal Word of God, truly experienced human life, suffered and died for us so that we might be redeemed. We give you thanks for your love and for your mercy and for this suffering that you experience for us in Christ's name. Amen.